On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Sedegatian type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. My name is Kevin Fryert. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son, Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Come join us to hear the story unfold. Welcome back to Raising Rare. We've got a really exciting episode today, but before we get started, Sonneth, how's Raghav doing? I'm super excited for this episode, although my life for the last several days have been very tough. Raghav had uh, an eye infection, then followed by what looks like a cold. If you remember last time he had a cold, he ended up in the ICU for several days. And so we are very, very, very closely monitoring him this time. Fortunately, the doctors had given us several medical equipment to keep his airway nice and clean and open. We've started all of that even before we knew it was a real cold. So hopefully this time we would have we, we would have averted the disaster, but I, I, it's too soon to say. So long story short, it's been tense. Well, we got him in our thoughts and prayers and... Uh, hope he hope he pulls through this one without going downhill again. Well, in our last episode, we discussed the high throughput screening program that, that you put together. You and CureGPX4.org have commissioned, and you looked at four thousand compounds in a search for one that would help Raghav. Some of those were existing and approved medications, and some are still in clinical trials. We recorded that episode just before you were expecting a readout from the assay. Today, the rubber hits the road. But before we get there, let's listen to the rest of that earlier conversation. So let's say we find 50 lead compounds. Um, my, my plan was to go through the list in Excel and put my finger on one that I love, that, that sounds good, <laughs> and then give it to Raghav. But obviously, we don't have the luxury of doing that because we don't know the safety profile. We don't know how it's going to disturb, as we talked about, the, the equilibrium or the homeostasis. We want to also evaluate availability of the drug. Like, is it available at the pharmacy? Should we go to the manufacturer? And so depending on a whole bunch of other variables, we have to figure out the drug that would be the easiest to give for Rakov. Uh, to give you a sense of the variables, Working backwards from giving the, the drug to Raghav, the first question is, is, is it available in a pharmacy? Can I go per, pay some money and buy them? If it is, is it in a, is, is it in a soluble form or, or at least a liquid form or a, or a solid form? If it's in a solid form, can I you know, formulate it into a liquid, liquid formulation because Raghav needs to have this in a G-tube? What are the compounding pharmacies that are capable of doing that? And that was one of the questions I explored several months ago, and I have a few, few a list of compounding pharmacies that I could go to for help now. If it is not available in the pharmacy today, can I go? Is it, is it being even manufactured? Or if it is if it is available in the pharmacy, is it in the right dosing form? For example, drugs would have been formulated for an adult dosage, which will obviously not work for three-year-olds. And so, can we reformulate the tablet into a smaller dosage? 
and there are some questions there like is it extended release standard release depending on that you can crush crush and split a tablet anyway working backwards what where are the materials available from like are is there an active pharmaceutical ingredient that i can go purchase what is the quality uh, of it does it have a usp uh, certification on it so we know it's pharmaceutical grade if not uh, even taking a step back right how do you go from a, a set of leads to a, sm a smaller set of compounds that give, you can give to ragav we start with safety do we go read up about the safety of all these drugs do we feel it's safe enough and then do we understand the pharmacokinetics enough to reformulate and, and figure out a dosage specifically for a three rating the existing safety data out there and there's some statistical analysis that needs to go in there and all of that once we figure out all of the logistics the next step is to go through the hospital's paperwork and so if it's not a drug available in a pharmacy today a doctor cannot prescribe it off label we have to go through fda again for what is called expanded access which is exactly what we did last year for this experimental medication um if it is available at a pharmacy the doctor can simply write a prescription we get ragav started on it and then another saga begins because we start to look at well how well is this drug doing how do we know if it's performing good or bad and for our controlling or identifying that we got what is called a metabolomic experiment done now so before we started a drug draga was already profiled we've already profiled like thousands of metabolites in ragav's blood and these are just chemicals in ragav's blood and after we give ragav this new drug we will look at the changes in his chemical chemical profile which will tell us the direction in which his body is, is consuming and assume subsuming this drug yeah you just you know in 2 minutes there went through you know years of work that has to happen and the difference again contrasting the situation in industry you would have multiple people that you would be testing in that first clinical trial right and then you'd have more people and more people and more people so you can get a lot of information in your case this is truly precision medicine this will be ragav's medicine because it was found in his cells moved up through in his cells and and just and and then given to him and one hand it seems like oh well, that'll be easier on the other hand like wait there's there's no there's smaller margin for error because we need to know what's going to happen in each step coming forward and in fact i'm just as you were talking about that i can imagine and and i'm just imagining speculating that your protocol for whatever this is you know this 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 magic compound that you find out there will be well let's give him one dose and see what happens okay let's give him a week of doses and see what happens after it's okay now let's put him on a, a real regimen and see if there's changes so you're almost doing the phase 1 2 3 clinical trial process in one kid which is fascinating to me because one statistic are different when you're doing it in an, a true end of one like that if it if it's working it's working if it's not it's not and and you will know that it there's no noise there right it's just did it work or not it's amazing how much you're learning too and so i want to ask you cuz you're an engineer you're always learning you just uh, you fascinate me in how quickly you learn but what have you learned at this point that you could give to other families to say 
here, here's something you need to know as you get started. I mean, I, I go back to mental models um, because it, rather than a specific learning that, that could change depending on context, mental models often don't change. And the mental model is garbage in, garbage out. The whole high throughput screening, right? So at every step of the way, you ask the question, am I putting garbage in? If so, I'm going to get garbage out, right? Uh, and how likely is this garbage? And that's, that's where the real nuance is. So how likely are we to be successful? What can we do to control for the quality of what is, goes into a particular step? And this could be the assays, this could be the cells, this, this could be the high throughput screening um, or the libraries. This could be the lead compounds that come out of it. This could be the, the, you know, the, the dosing reformulation process, the, the procure, procurement, like all along this pipeline, it's garbage in, garbage out. And that's just the mental model that is applicable here. Um, the second mental model, I would say, is, as you, as you said, precision medicine. The problem with precision medicine is if it works, like, like if Raghav starts to walk tomorrow, obviously everybody is happy. No one cares about you know, whether this drug worked or not, but that's highly unlikely. And that mental model there is that homeostasis, the body has evolved through millions of years, not just like the human body, right? Like, our hum like biological organisms have evolved over billions of years to protect itself from external chemicals that go into the body all the time and harm it. And so by throwing a drug into the body, it's going to figure out a way to protect itself, right? So there is very little chance that the drug will do what it, what it did in the, in the cells. And so how do we actually know if the drug is successful or not? And that's where outcome measures and biomarkers come into the picture. So working backwards from a proper outcome measure, if you can find one, would be huge. Um, I did not find one for the longest time. Metabolomics, I am super bullish on because I'd rather not pick one, but I'd pick thousands of, outcome, of biomarkers. In this case, you're measuring thousands of chemicals in the blood, right? I will look for profiles and fluctuations of them, and we'll start making sense of what those fluctuations mean. And I'm fairly certain there will be fluctuations after we get drug started on a drug. But you know, if it's meaningful, is it it will it translate something in the biological sense? Those are all questions we can talk after the fact. But I'd rather start with with some biomarkers that measure how well some how well these drugs are working. And so that's that's the big learning that I, I guess two big learnings that I have had uh, through this process. So I'm going to analyze it a little bit. So your learning is actually keep learning. Because I remember us having a conversation in like episode two, where you said AI is not going to work because AI can't create non-existent data. And what you, and, and the garbage in garbage out is it, it's true that mental model is holding up, but now you've got this other view, which is, but what if we measured all the data that's possible to measure in someone or that's practical to measure in metabolomics, which is measuring metabolites. And then looking at with AI, because that will show differences among individuals and, and what's happened when before and after an intervention, fantastic stuff. So I think, you know, the big learning is, yeah, have mental models, but let them grow, let, mm -hmm. let, them, let them be informed because you're, you're experiencing something you've never experienced before. Why would it be in your mental model? Now it's there. 
and just listening to you talking about the things that in the industry we call de-risking, if we can answer the questions, you know, is it soluble? How much do you have to give? What are the safety things to look for? What are, what are the things you're worried about? What are the body's reactions to something to protect itself? But you start answering those questions and, and you can narrow down to, okay, this is one that actually seems like a drug where the benefit outweighs the risk. And so I think it's, it's really cool to watch that, you know, starting to build up in your, in your vocabulary and your, and your actions. Um, it's really, it's amazing. It just like happened naturally once I, once I had uh, a drug, like for example, I had dimethylfumarate, Tecfidera, as a drug that I wanted to give to Raga. And the next questions around what dosing, what solubility, like all those things just presented itself because, well, I have a tablet right and my son cannot follow a tablet solve this problem for me my doctor would not write a prescription because the well the dosing is too high on the tablet solve a problem for me and you start asking these questions and then you ask the question well what if it's not dimethyl fumarate what if this abc drug what other what other possibilities could open up right and suddenly you're you're presented with the whole uh, i don't know the, the preclinical drug pipeline in front of you that you have to solve as we've said, it's, it, there's multiple layers and, and, it, and they're intertwined. So what's really cool, this is, you know, you've got this, this big, it's, it's not an experiment. It's a, you've got a process running here. You've got a program running. And at the end of it, you know, there's going to be some results. I can't wait. You know, this is an exciting episode for me because I love the science and I love watching you learn, but I'm really excited about Boy, when some final results come out, what do you have? You know, is it 50 hits? Is it five hits? And what do you do with it? Um, so we're definitely going to have to have a follow-up episode when those results are reported. Yeah, the results are going to come out in, in the next few days. So I'm, I'm super excited. I can't wait to see that list by myself. I know there's a lot more work that has to happen after the results come out. So I'm, I'm kind of like, doing all my pre-work at this uh but i think once the results come out it's going to be go time so i have people lined up to analyze, analyze the results give me some reports on on the drugs that we found and so on so it's going to be super exciting ever since we recorded that discussion i've been waiting on pins and needles to get the final results and share them with our listeners what do you have for us sana drum roll we have uh, 116 compounds uh, that are hits. Wow. 116. That's a huge number out of 4,000. That's that, like 2.5% were hits. That's just amazing. And just like you added our last episode, now things get a little more difficult and complex to deal with. So I don't think life ever gets easy in this journey. Uh, you know, when we started with high throughput screening, we thought, okay, we'll go in with 4,000, we'll get a couple or maybe 10 out of it. And, you know, it should be a pretty easy pick to go forward with one. But now we have 116 in order of magnitude more than what I thought we would have. And the real challenge is picking the one lucky winner out of this. And what's even worse is there is no clear algorithm to, to pick the lucky winner. 
even if I pick one, uh, there is just no data to tell if it's going to help Raga or, or how much or by how much. This is one of those things that you're on an upslope now, uh, upslope in emotion and, and energy and excitement. You know, the adrenaline's running because, wow, we have 116 hits. And then you turn around and say, and that means we have to do a lot of work to narrow that down. So what is your immediate next step? The immediate next step, once I got the 116 down, um, and I actually want to take a minute and explain how we got to the 116 at the first place. So we had the first phase of the readout, and readout just means results. The, in the first phase, we actually got a lot more numbers, a number of compounds, uh, and then we did what is called a concentration response curve, which is looking at how each of these compounds perform in this experiment at different concentrations. It was Awesome, because some of the compounds uh, looked like they were doing good in the original concentration we chose, but once we went to the concentration response curves, we can clearly see they were not performing as well, or some of them were causing the cell to die, uh, which was giving us false signals. And then, you know, certain compounds were you need to give a lot of them before they start, uh, you know, actually acting. And so that was super helpful. And out of the concentration response curves, we narrowed down to the 116 that we chose. And for in the 116 compounds, we chose an arbitrary threshold called uh, using a compound called ferrostatin. Um, so ferrostatin is what's called a tool compound. What that means is it's just a test compound that's used in experiments as, gen as a general benchmark across the field to understand how compounds are performing against this disease and this, the loss of this gene. Out of the 116, only two compounds perform better than ferrostatin. I'm using the, the term better loosely here. Uh, more precisely, we're talking about how well, how, what's the lowest concentration at which a compound could do better than ferrostatin. But this is still not indicative of success in, in um, RAGAV because these are all cell assays. We don't know what is what will happen once we once we go to larger animals. We don't know what the safety profile would look like if we give it to humans. And so we're going back to the 116 list and uh, looking for compounds that are FDA approved, because the original list had compounds that were both FDA approved and used in human in some sort. So it could be in phase one, but you know shelved uh, later, or it could just be in phase two, phase one, phase two, and this continued and so on. We currently, we've annotated this list with compounds that are currently in the market that are FDA approved, and that's given us 43 compounds to work with. So that's already a big jump there. You use one criteria to, to select it out and to, to get down to less than half of what you had before is actually good news. I mean, those other compounds never go away. They're still out there. You can always go back and look, but to, to go for the ones that are approved that's a fast, faster pathway to get them into Rigav. And I think that's a great way to go. Exactly. Our, we have a, a two-phased approach to, to administering these drugs to Raghav. The first phase is off-label because that's the fastest. Uh, what that means is that if there is a strong scientific backing, the physician can take the risk and write a prescription to give this drug to Raghav, even if it is not approved by the FDA for this indication. And that's the off-label route. And, and two criteria need to satisfy to be able to do off-label. First, 
is safety. We need compounds that are incredibly safe. So the physician would, would be inclined to taking that risk on. Second is a strong scientific backing. I mean, this experiment has already given us some data on why we chose this particular compound to go forward with. But we are now working with more experts in the GPX-4 field to look through this list and, and, and annotate, identify the mechanisms of action, uh, get more deeper understanding into why this compound might be doing what it's doing in, in Raghav cells. And so once we have those two pieces of data points, we'll execute phase one um, and start a, a drug to, with Raghav off-label. In parallel, we'll also start phase two, which is looking for more efficacious drugs that could require a longer path to getting to Raghav. And the longer path in this case could be starting a brand new research study, doing a single patient IND, or you know, reformulating the drug, or even remanufacturing the drug from the base pharmaceutical ingredients and so on. Yeah, just to clarify for our listeners and um, make sure people don't get confused, when you say phase one and phase two, you're talking about your project plan phase one and phase two, not the clinical phase one, two, and three that regulators would be looking at. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm talking about the project plan. So that's, that's nice. It's a two-prong approach, and you're able to, to go forward. It's interesting that you have to take this empirical data, you know, something that's observed and say, okay, it it did something, it seems pretty potent in the assay that was put together, which is our only kind of signal right now of, of how would this do in Raghav. And I think that now you have to go back and say, but, but how is it doing that? You have to go and find the mechanism of action. And is it the same mechanism of action that it was designed to do? It's, a, it's an understanding problem now instead of a searching problem for a little while. That's right. It's understanding and then heuristics. It's basically guessing why it's doing what it's doing, uh, because there's just no way you can prove it. Um, you could only guess based on your understanding of the scientific literature, extrapolating based on prior experiences and so on. This is where you know, pulling information from as many experts as possible and triangulating them helps because we, you know, no one person holds the complete knowledge, but together we might actually get to understanding the solution quite a bit better. Back when I was doing this for a living, we would have a team of experts from 10 to 12 different fields trying to make these decisions and they all come in with different perspectives. So who's on your team? For primarily my clinician, my, my son's clinician is on this team, um, and that's Dr. Keith Van Haren. He's a neurologist at Stanford. He's amazing. We are then talking to all of the GPX4 experts that I've uh, been in touch with so far, and that's a long list, so I won't go into that list. And then the, the, the third line of uh, people are uh, folks from a contract research organization that have graciously offered to, to help pro bono get, collect more data about these compounds. Even 43 is quite a lot when you think about looking at the literature, uh, collecting information about safety, bioavailability, dosing, you know, FDA approval status, and then going into mechanism of action. So I've contracted a team of experts that, that do this for a living for other biotech companies. They include, the team includes, you know, scientists, um, regulate, regulatory consultants, manufacturing consultants, and, and so on. So it's, it's, it's sort of a, a mini company in, in, in its own right for me that's working um, on this problem. I think that's a, a great way to go because you're not trying to build a team from scratch, particularly when 
you don't have the experience or the connections to, to know which people to pull in. You tap into a company like that where they understand what to do when there's a, a, a test product in front of them and they can go do their work, you know, as they normally would. So you've tapped right into a kind of, I wouldn't call it a turnkey operation, but, but you've turned, you've got a pretty good team there to uh, back up the people who are the GPX4 experts. I think that that's fantastic. So what is your strategy? You're, you said safety was first. You need to know the mechanism of action. So you need this scientific hypothesis. You, you called it a guess, but that's where science starts. It's a hypothesis, an educated guess. You know, how do we think this is working? Okay, let's use that hypothesis and start doing the work to test it and continue with the scientific process. But what's your strategy for narrowing the hits further? Because you, as you said, you want to get to one. That you still got to eliminate 42 of them. That's right. So in terms of, you know, the phase one, which is going, uh, giving a drug off-label to Raghav, safety and dosing are two key criteria that needs to be uh, evaluated first. And they usually would weed off a big chunk of compounds. So in terms of safety, we want to make sure the drug doesn't have any um, side effects that you know, we don't want. Um, for example, we've been looking at this list. There was a drug, there is a drug that uh, is used in schizophrenia. Actually, there's, there's several drugs that have been used in schizophrenia and, and they have pretty severe side effects in terms of, you know, tremors and um, more schizophrenic-like effects. We don't want any of that in Raghav, right? On the other hand, if the drug is safe, but it's not available at the right dosing in the pharmacy, we have to figure out a way to reduce the dosage. For example, we were evaluating one of the drugs which was only available in what's called an extended release formulation. And all it means is that when once they figured out the, the drug, when they converted it to a tablet, they repackaged it so that the drug will get slowly released in the body through the day. So patients don't have to take the drug three times a day. Instead, they can only take it two times a day or one time a day. Now, the challenge with these extended release formulations are, since Raghav has a G-tube, we need to crush the tablet into a liquid form and give it through the G-tube. And once you crush it, you lose the formulation and you essentially lose the properties the tablet was built with. Um, so we do, we are essentially looking at a drug that's now it could work differently once you crush these tablets. So understanding what the what the dosing regimen is, understanding what's available in the market for us to pick up and repurpose would be the second step of of weeding out many more compounds in this list. So safety and dosing. Once we get these out of the way, then we will have a, a smaller set of compounds that. Are, are real candidates, right? We could pick any one of them and give it to Raghav. And then we go look for the mechanism of action and dive deep into the science and ask ourselves, why is this drug doing what it's doing today? Um, and if we can convince, uh, get a convincing argument for it, we'll pick the one that we think would work best and go forward with it. Yeah, so there's there's lots of factors you have to weigh there to to do this. And when we did this, in industry, and we'd have the same problem here. You'd have a whole, you know, basket of things that you could go forward with. We used a method called multifactorial decision making. It's kind of like what you do when you buy a house. You know, you think about, uh, well, where is the house? Is it close to what I need it to be? Is it the kind of house we want? Is it the right size? Can we afford it? What are the taxes? There's all these factors, and you have to come up with a way to sort through them. 
And what we would do is we'd, we'd identify the factors and then put weights on them. So, you know, in this case, safety as the highest weight from what you've said. And then we'd have, you know, okay, well, efficacy or activity or potency would be another one. And then depending on where the, where the project was, whether it was in a cellular assay like you've just used or it was farther along, you know, you'd have more information and you'd be able to, to think about other things. You've got, you know, 40 some possibilities here. You know, when you, when you get down to it, I think you've, you've laid out your, your weighting there. How do, how do you think you're going to kind of sort through it? Yeah. Um, actually, I don't think I have the, the right weighting yet because I actually have two filters. Safety and dosing are actually filters. They just remove compounds that, are, that don't satisfy the filter criteria. Once you get to the mechanism of action, and that's where the, the real weighting comes in, I don't even know what those, what those factors are going to be and what the weights would look like. Uh, but my hope is the, the number of compounds would be small enough that I could, you know, pick my favorite and run with it. Regardless, like this is a pretty complicated problem at this point because it's it's starting to get very opinionated. And I'm always worried that I will end up making a poor scientific opinion that others trust. And so, you know, as long as I can get more people to weigh in and and, and confirm the opinions that we make, I think we should be we should be good to go. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a treatment and cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4 on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. You can continue to follow Raga's story next time on Raising Rare. Raising Rare.